It's Tuesday, June 5th, and this is The Daily Dive. It's primary day in five states today, and California leads the pack with what is called the jungle primary. The top two, regardless of political affiliation, make it to the general election. David Siders, national political correspondent for Politico, joins us to talk about the primary and focuses on the governor's race that some are calling a scam. Next, the Supreme Court has issued a ruling in favor of a Colorado baker who refused to make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple based on his religious beliefs. This was a narrow ruling that did not address the larger question of whether businesses can refuse services to same-sex couples based on freedom of speech or freedom of religious exercise. Lydia Wheeler, legal and regulatory affairs reporter for The Hill, joins us for more on this decision. Finally, another volcano has erupted, and this time it's deadly. Guatemala's Volcán de Fuego has erupted and sent a pyroclastic flow racing down, causing destruction and death. We will be joined by volcanologist Dr. Peter Ward for more on the science of this particular eruption. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The idea of Democrats trying to game Republican Party politics in California isn't necessarily a byproduct of top two. That happened even when California had more traditional primaries. Joining us now is David Siders. He's a national political correspondent for Politico. So Californians are going to the polls today. It's their primary. A bunch of offices are opening up. One of the main ones, obviously, is the race for governor. In California, they have a weird top two system for the primary. Let's start there and explain that a little bit. Right. The, the top two system, some people call it the jungle primary. The top two vote getters for any office advance to the general election, regardless of party affiliation. So instead of having one Democrat and one Republican advance out of primaries, you could have races where you would have two Democrats facing off or two Republicans in the fall. People are calling this kind of a scam all of a sudden. Democrats, obviously, very popular in California. Republicans for a little while had almost had no hope of getting up there. But there's this thing happening where the top runner right now, Gavin Newsom, a lieutenant governor, he was almost buying ads or promoting the top Republican so that uh, he could run against him, uh, assuming it's an easier race in November. And the same thing with Antonio Viragosa. He was also promoting another Republican so that he can maybe beat him out later on. What was going on with all this? It's so interesting. Uh, you know, in fairness, uh, we should mention that the idea of Democrats trying to game Republican Party politics in California isn't necessarily a byproduct of top two. That happened even when California had more traditional primaries, but it's certainly more pronounced now because what you have is you have a Republican Party that's been just decimated down to about 25% of the electorate. So in today's election, we expect them you know, to overperform, but probably be 30 to 32% of the electorate. Instead of really a party, they're, they're like another, an interest group. They're just a voting block. And so the Democrats message to them and treat them as, as just another voting block. So you see Gavin Newsom airing ads that chiefly serve to reinforce the conservative credentials of the top Republican in the race, because he would much rather that Republican finish second than Antonio Villaraigosa, a Democrat. Because if he has to face Antonio Villaraigosa in the fall, that's probably a very competitive, spirited race. Whereas if John Cox finishes second tonight, uh, we should just call the race over. Gavin Newsom will be the next governor. Right. A lot of strategists are even saying nobody even cares who wins. It's all about who's coming in second. Most recent polls, Gavin Newsom's at about 33 percent. John Cox about 20. Antonio Villaraigosa at 13. Travis Allen, Republican at 12. And then the rest of the field just falls below that. 
but he, people are even saying, you know, as far as Democrats go, there's really no major differences between them. That might be a reason why he wants to, uh, Gavin Newsom might want to run against John Cox, just to provide that difference, at least. He certainly would have a contrast to John Cox, who's a, an acolyte of, of President Trump. There, there are differences at the margins between these Democrats. The, the difference is, if you're looking at a California Democrat from Washington, it doesn't look that different. And if you're looking at a California Democrat in this race, it doesn't look that different, simply because the race itself has not allowed for the kind of competition over differences at the margins that these candidates or Democrats in California might have once really embraced. There are subtle differences about universal health care, for example, or about education, how fully to embrace charter schools. These are, these are things Democrats struggle with, and rightly so, because they're complicated issues. And in a contested, exciting race, I guess, you, you might have expected those issues to really play out. And they might yet, if you have Antonio Viragosa and Gavin Newsom in the runoff. Uh, but that hasn't happened in the primary. Instead, the focus for the last three weeks has all been you know, who can best game this, this system to get their preferred candidate to finish second. Another interesting angle also is how disengaged voters are. There was another recent poll, uh, USC, LA Times poll. They said that 13% of registered voters said that they had watched or listened to any type of gubernatorial debate. Debate. So that leaves a huge swath of the electorate that isn't engaged at all. Well, I think largely you can answer this by saying it's in California. Voters here are, are traditionally and, and famously disengaged. We care much less about politics than probably voters elsewhere. That's a big part of it. And I think the other one is that that the candidates themselves have not you know, necessarily inspired groundswells of support so that you don't you know, look at the trends in, in candidates this year that, that have excited people. They're, they're young or they're women or they're from outside of politics or, or something like that. They have a spark. And, and here you have candidates leading Democrats who have either held statewide or held big office like Antonio Villaraigosa or who currently hold office. And the only women in the race are, are afterthoughts really in the election uh, and will not finish in the top. I've heard some consultants anyway say that this field may not have been the most inspiring, even if, if the candidates are qualified and, and experienced and whatnot. And then there's also the factor of President Donald Trump. He figures a lot into a lot of the campaign messages. California is seen as a big liberal state and almost fighting against the administration constantly. How does he figure into this race? Yeah, he's probably the biggest effect, I think. And I'm glad you bring him up because he's really the if you're a Democrat trying to take a lesson from California's governor's race or Democratic politics going forward, particularly in 2020, when Democrats will probably be trying to knock him out in the presidential race. With a possible one, Californian as well. Eric Garcetti might be preparing for a 2020 run. Indeed, I think he is. And maybe Kamala Harris, too. And maybe Tom Steyer. I mean, there could be three Californians. And maybe Gavin Newsom, uh, despite saying he's not interested in running in 2020, the, the California governor, a, a California governor, I should say, who is not 79 years old, right. is immediately considered, I think, a viable or a possible contender. But what Trump suggests in this race, and, and I think we've seen it elsewhere, is that it's very hard for Democrats to differentiate themselves when the biggest thing that riles up Democratic activists in the base is opposition to Trump. And so it makes these gradations of Democrat, I think, harder to differentiate for the electorate. 
and it's easier to come out and say, I will oppose Trump. And if you just care about opposing Trump, then the choice between you know, Gavin Newsom, Antonio Viragosa, John Chung, or any of the Democrats in the race this year, really, they're all, they're all I think, equally disgusted with the president. David Siders will uh, see what's going to happen in the election, in the primary later today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's not just a cake. As I've tried to convey, that cake is a, an iconic symbol of a wedding. I see it as an act of following my faith and that the state is requiring me to deny my faith and create something that, in my mind, is that strong of a message. Joining us now is Lydia Wheeler, legal and regulatory affairs reporter for The Hill. So the Supreme Court ruled and they sided with a Colorado baker on the case of making a uh, wedding cake for a same-sex couple. He said he did not want to do it based on religious grounds. And this is a case that's been in the making since uh, 2012, I think, is when it originally started. They heard arguments. It took them about six months to come to this conclusion right now. But they didn't really decide on everything. What was the decision that came down? Right. So uh, the Supreme Court issued a very narrow ruling in favor of this Colorado baker named Jack Phillips. What's interesting here is that Phillips had originally asked the court to rule that his custom wedding cakes are a form of religious expression that are protected by the First Amendment. He said that he shouldn't have to make a cake for this same-sex wedding because he is morally and religiously opposed to gay marriage and that his cake sends a message that he supports gay marriage. But the justices didn't go that far. The court instead found in a 7-2 to two ruling that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, which first heard the case, had violated Jack's right to freely exercise his religion when they heard the dispute back in 2014. The Civil Rights Commission, one of the members had said that his defense in using religion was despicable, and the justices felt that that was unfair to him. They weren't uh, allowing him his religious freedom. That's right. There was that one. One of the commissioners, as you said, said it was despicable. Another compared it to defenses of slavery and the Holocaust. And Justice Anthony Kennedy said, hey, you can't do that. He said that states are totally within their right to pass these anti-discrimination laws that prohibit businesses from discriminating against LGBT people that are seeking out public services. But he said that when the state wants to enforce those laws, they have to do so in a neutral way. So he basically uh, said that the commission had expressed some bias against Jack Phillips and that he didn't get a fair shake to start with. We don't know what's in the heads of the justices with regards to this. But if the Civil Rights Commission had been a little nicer, let's say, or a little bit more neutral, this ruling, this could have been a completely different thing happening. I think that because they didn't want to wade into those claims of these First Amendment claims, I think that if they had, and there hadn't been that sort of behavior happening within the members on the commission, we would see a different ruling. And I think a lot of people were expecting that. Um, this was viewed as being one of the next uh, potential landmark rulings in gay rights after the court's 2015 decision in the gay marriage case. So I think some people, a lot of people are really disappointed to see that the court not only issued such a, a narrow ruling, but also sided with the Baker just relating to the facts of this case. The central question was not answered whether businesses themselves can refuse services to gay people. How did the justices, they were all divided as well. Uh, some of the liberal justices also cited on, on the side of uh, Mr. Phillips. 
That's right. Members of Liberal Court, Elena Kagan and Justice Stephen Breyer, also were on board with Kennedy and the Chief Justice in this ruling. But what was interesting is that Justice Clarence Thomas kind of didn't want to let those claims, although he he sided with the majority, and he didn't really want to let Jack Phillips' arguments go. Um, he said that that the court should have basically ruled in Jack Phillips' favor in, and said that his wedding cakes are a form of religious expression and that they are protected under the First Amendment. But Anthony Kennedy here was very careful in his decision and, and noted in several instances his concern about going too far in ruling in Jack Phillips' favor. He made comments about saying that we need to have a decision that is curtailed because we don't want to give all businesses who object uh, object to gay marriage for moral and religious reasons, the ability to, say, put up signs denying services for same-sex weddings. Um, that was kind of something that he was worried could happen. So he was very careful to say anti-discrimination laws by states are lawful, but what the commission did here in enforcing those laws was not. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, offered a strong dissent also. She said, I mean, even, even though the commission was kind of mean towards Mr. Phillips, they still don't think that they that they should have lost this case, that the defendants Craig and Mullins should have lost this case. Yeah, she went on and, and basically disagreed with the court. She said that just the comments from one or two commissioners shouldn't thwart the whole thing. And she said that the civil rights, the, the state's uh, anti-discrimination law, you know, should the way it should be read is be um, to side with the couple in this case. So she was surprised and a little angered by the fact that court was relying on just a few of these commissioners on the seven-member panel, specifically because this case, as she said, went through so many different layers. You know, it wasn't just their ruling, you know, it then went to the state appeals court. And so, you know, she didn't think that the, the court should base its decision on, on just what a couple commissioners from the state said. What's the next step? Do they Are they going to make a decision on the larger question? And then there's also this issue of a flower shop who also refused to provide flowers for a wedding, same-sex marriage wedding. That's right. We could see this case come back up before the court next term. There is, uh, as you mentioned, there's this case out of the state of Washington involving a, a local florist who refused to make a floral arrangement for the wedding, the same-sex wedding of actually her longtime customer. And the state's attorney general sued her on um, that person's behalf, even though they seem, didn't seem to disagree with her decision or didn't seem to be upset by it. That case, presents some of the same claims of religious liberty and anti-discrimination and those same issues that were involved in the Masterpiece Cake Shop that the court didn't reach. That petition is currently sitting before the court. They have a conference on Thursday uh, in which they sit down and they discuss which cases they're going to take for the next term and which they're not. And so we'll we'll see um, maybe Monday whether or not they agree to take this case or not. That case is different because that case started in the court system and didn't go before kind of a state's Civil Rights Commission as as this one did. Um, so there's not the facts in the case are very different. Um, there's no issue of did the state commissioners on this board give the florist a neutral hearing? There's not that question. Lydia Wheeler, legal and regulatory affairs reporter for The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a mixture of ash and rocks and gas, and it can move down the slope of the volcano at 50, 55 miles an hour. Joining us now is volcanologist Dr. Peter Ward. He has previously worked with the United States Geological Survey for many, many years. 
There's been another eruption at a volcano, this time in Guatemala, this time deadly. As of this recording, there's been over 60 deaths. It's expected to rise by a lot. This eruption, it's the Volcán de Fuego. It's called the Volcano of Fire. What can you tell us about this particular volcano in Guatemala? Well, this is uh, the biggest eruption of this volcano since uh, uh, another volcano in, in Guatemala in 1902. Uh, this volcano has actually been quite active for some time, uh, but this is the most damaging eruption so far. The uh, I think this is the 12th or 13th eruption since uh, uh, activity began in 1999. But it is very typical of the circum-Pacific volcanoes, the Ring of Fire. It's explosive. It produces ash flows and very hot gas flows that come flowing down off the mountain, killing anything in their path. And unfortunately, a volcano like Fuego in Guatemala, uh, there's population living well up on the sides of this volcano. This volcano specifically, uh, we had previously had you on the, on the podcast to talk about Kilauea in Hawaii, and the lava flow there was very slow moving. This, they call it a pyroclastic flow. This is a mix of ash, rock, gases, and it's so fast moving. They say that people cannot outrun it. Uh, even cars might not be able to outrun it. What is this pyroclastic flow? Describe that a little more. Well, it's a mixture of ash and rocks and gas, and it can move down the slope of the volcano at 50, 55 miles an hour. And it is very dangerous. It's very hot. Uh, it can sear you, kill you immediately. Uh, it's, it's very dangerous. This, this is what makes the circum-Pacific volcano so dangerous. Yeah, some of the descriptions are pretty dramatic. They said that there was bodies covered with so much ash they look like statues and they had to use sledgehammers to break through the roofs of houses to break it open to see if people were alive inside so the destructive path of these flows are almost inescapable this type of flow i mean if, if this volcano erupted really big time i mean if we were talking about an eruption from uh, fuego that was similar to the 1991 uh, pinatubo eruption We'd be talking about thousands of people killed. And uh, this is a small part of showing what it can do. On a scale of 1 to 10, you said this was not that big of an eruption. What would this be, and what would the previous eruption you were just talking about be? Well, I'm not sure uh, what this is classified as yet, but we have something called we call the Volcano Explosivity Index. Pinatubo was a, man, it was a 6, and this is a logarithmic scale. I suspect this is down in the 2 or 3 range. Wow. I wasn't able to find any official uh, notification of it yet. And they did say that the activity has stopped for now, or it stopped erupting, but this could pick up at any moment again, right? Yes, I don't know what evidence they have for or against a major eruption. This is the kind of eruption that's been going on at Fuego for some time. This is just a little bigger than what's been happening. And then a little bit more on the differences between Hawaii's Kilauea and this one. They called the Kilauea volcano kind of a shield dome where this is there they say it's a stratovolcano is that correct yes a stratovolcano is a volcano that's very tall and reasonably steep sides like uh lassen rainier uh, baker and that we see in the united states and all around the world a shield volcano is more typical of uh, basaltic volcanic areas like hawaii like uh iceland uh like the uh, east african rift and in that case, basically, basalt flows out of the, uh, the summit or out of the side of the volcano, as we're seeing in Hawaii, flows downhill into the ocean, 
and it doesn't move all that fast. But it's uh, it's wonderful to watch. I mean, it's uh, the pictures coming out of Hawaii are are just excellent. The stratovolcano, on the other hand, is explosive, and it typically erupts at any one time for a very short period of time, minutes to hours, uh, and uh, it's an explosive eruption. And if you're anywhere nearby, uh, you're in danger. You also, just like Kilauea, you also have a history with this particular volcano. You were there in the 70s. Uh, I think you put the first seismograph on this volcano, and you were there when yeah. it also erupted before? In the early 1970s, I put seismographs on, on about a seven or eight volcanoes in Central America. Fuego was one of them. And in 1974, when Fuego was erupting much smaller than what we're seeing now, uh, I was actually up on the volcano watching uh, from a distance. But that was uh, a much safer eruption than what's been going on uh, in the last uh, 10 years or so. All right. Dr. Peter Ward, volcanologist, thank you very much for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. All right. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. We love the feedback, so don't forget to leave us a comment and give us a rating. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.